Our scripture reading today comes from 2 Samuel 9. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul, whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul, that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Makur, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. The king David sent and brought him from the house of Makur, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table, like one of the king's sons, and Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. Um, I'm thankful to be back with you. Um, last Sunday, I was officiating a wedding, uh, so it's nice to be back here and be able to study the scriptures with you again. Um, if you're in person, or maybe you're on uh, YouTube, or maybe even Facebook, thanks for joining us in worship. Um, if you're new to North Cross, welcome. We're really glad you're here. Um, would you do us a favor and just hang out afterwards? Either send us, shoot us an email, as Damon talked about, but also if you're here in person, We'd love to get to know you. You can hang out inside, outside, whatever you'd prefer. And if you're here again, I'm really thankful uh, that you're here again. Uh, Part of being a family is we get to see each other. And it's really a a wonderful thing to be in each other's presence. This spring and summer, um, our sermon series is looking at the life of David. And we're really looking at the life of David as it's told in 2 Samuel at this point. And two, two weeks ago now, we looked uh, together at 2 Samuel chapter 7, and we looked there at David offering to build God a home, a temple. But instead, God says, no, thank you, David. In fact, I'm going to build you a home, a royal house forever, that someone, um, a family line, David, you're going to have a family line that someone will always be on the throne and rule as king from your family. And that ultimate someone is Jesus Christ himself from the line of David. This week in 2 Samuel chapter 9, David is even more royally settled than he was. His throne is now promised for eternity. 
His palace of stone and cedar is right next door to the ark of the Lord, the dwelling place of God on, on the planet at that time. And all of his enemies inside of Israel and outside of Israel are in the process of being conquered. They're slowly being defeated, basically defeated. So ancient Israel is a small empire with secured borders and religious and economic authority, finally. And so the beginning of 2 Samuel, these chapters continue to ask this really good question. What do we do when life calms down? What do we do when life slowly begins to feel settled, more like normal again? Do we know how to handle this growing sense of security as the pandemic wanes, perhaps? Do we know how to celebrate? Let alone who to celebrate or what to celebrate? Our passage this morning from 2 Samuel chapter 9 suggests that times like these and questions like these will make us see and do surprising things. Surprising things about ourselves and about God, but also do surprising things for other people. And so before we step into the character of God and how, what he celebrates and how he celebrates, would you join me in praying? Uh, let's pray for our time together uh, in these words given to us this morning. So let's pray. Father, um, we are thankful for these words to us. Uh, it's a rich passage, Father. It's a, it's a, we look at it and there's a lot of hard names um, and we think maybe this has nothing to do with our lives, but then as we crack the book and as we pray and as we study, it comes alive once again. Lord, would you remind us of the old, old story? And would it not get old to us? Would you renew and refresh us by it? Would you change us from the inside out? Jesus, would you become more alive to us, more beautiful and believable to the eyes of our hearts? Would you be raised up? We ask this, that you'd meet us where we are. In your name, Jesus. Amen. So if uh, Presbyterian pastors had trading cards, if we like had posters that we put in our bedrooms of our theological heroes, uh, I would have to say that Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield would surely be in that laminated, glossy finished mix, right? B.B. Warfield, for those of you who don't know, was a, was a famous late 19th century scholar and churchman who, who sort of was in charge of Princeton Theological Seminary and wrote expansively and extensively about systematic theology. And if you Google a picture of him, not right now, don't, don't do that <laughs> later, uh, you'll see he cuts a sobering profile, piercing slightly side eyes and some majestic facial hair, right? He's got a, a beautifully bushy brushed beard. Uh, again, tempting to Google it, but maybe later. Anyway, this past week I've been thinking about, when did I first hear about B.B. Warfield? And maybe this is the first time for you, that's totally great. But when did, I first think of, when did I first hear about it? I think it must have been in one of two times. Either when it was like late at night and I was having some theological conversation that was way over my head in college, and someone mentioned the name B.B. Warfield and what something he said uh, alongside the Bible. Or just the days before seminary, early seminary, uh, graduate school for pastors, when you know, B.B. Warfield's name was invoked with sort of a hushed awe. But only recently did I read 
about his wife and his marriage. His, it's amazing to think that always when we, when we think about Warfield, we think about his massive intellect and his clear, penetrating writings. But there's this amazing story that he's, li he's lived out. Um, so on a combination of a study, a further, uh, venture for further study and a honeymoon uh, in Leipzig, Germany, Annie and Bibi Warfield go and they take a walking tour of the Harz Mountains only to get caught in a terrible thunderstorm. With a lack of cover and safety and they start to get pounded by rain and then thunder starts to rumble, terrifying cracks of thunder and sort of spearing jagged lightning strikes over and over and over and over again, close, too close to the newlywed couple. And while neither was physically hurt in the storm, Annie, B.B. Warfield's new wife, was thrown into such a state of shock, she never truly or fully recovered. Annie Warfield became more or less an invalid for the rest of her life. B.B. Warfield only left her side for his seminary duties and never for more than two hours at a time. This world-famous scholar limited his life and his travels and his ambitions professionally for nearly 39 years to the small town of Princeton, New Jersey and the care of his wife. One student of B.B. Warfield was struck by the sight of them walking together near campus and he was moved to write this. The gentleness of his manner was striking proof of the loving care with which he surrounded her. But to go back to my original image, um, if B.B. Warfield had a trading card and you flipped it over to the back side and with the bullet point stats and the italicized description, you know, the, the part that makes him truly collectible, I'm worried that that story about his care for Annie wouldn't make the cut to be included. So I'm thankful for the good and thoughtful study that B.B. Warfield has given the church, that incredible knowledge that he's given us as a deposit. But I worry that we overlook what's truly worth celebrating about people. Or we, even in the church, celebrate the wrong things about the right people. Or even that we celebrate the wrong people altogether. And this is why passages like 2 Samuel chapter 9 are so helpful. They're a remedy to our human and cultural condition, a medicine for what we choose to celebrate and even who we choose to celebrate or follow on social media, for instance. Who are our celebrities? And why are these people that we celebrate, our celebrities, actually celebrated? And in his infinite wisdom, God interrupts the book of 2 Samuel and its historical narrative. It's a historical narrative of all of David's land acquisitions and military victories in the Iron Age Middle East, right? Victory after victory. And in chapter 9, God pauses the Tinker Tape Parade and he slows us down and helps us to notice and then celebrate what we often don't or won't celebrate. The way that a king treated his friend's child. The way that King David 
treated his political rival and enemy. But more than that, we get a picture of how to celebrate a condition of weakness and disability or inability. People and situations that we too often avoid because they make us feel shame or frightened or just plain uncomfortable. But God in his infinite wisdom, he knows we can't just step into David's generous shoes like we'd like to. To celebrate what we ought to celebrate, to care for those who should be cared for, we need to also step into Mephibosheth's shoes, his situation, and recognize that we too are lame in both feet, at least spiritually, and likely more. And so 2 Samuel chapter 9 shows us who to celebrate and how to make much of them. But it does this by showing us Jesus, the son of David, making much of us. And so our passage describes how God changes us into good celebrators by asking three questions. And this is your outline for the sermon this morning. First, verses one through four, who does God celebrate? Who does God celebrate? Second, verses one through eight, why does God celebrate? And third, verses five through 13, how does God celebrate? Again, that sermon outlines in your electronic bulletin may be projected behind me, but we're gonna begin with verses one through four and 2 Samuel's description of who God chooses to celebrate. God describes the kind of person he celebrates by telling us who the King David celebrates, Mephibosheth. But Mephibosheth isn't actually named in the first four verses, right? In fact, they read a little bit like a detective story, like the first half hour of every Law and Order show, no matter what kind of Law and Order it is. That first half hour, right? Name your favorite TV show where the good guys are trying to track down somebody who's made himself scarce and is, is sort of in hiding and hard to find. And you see that going on in this passage. David has to ask in verse one, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul? He has no idea. Then look, David's royal court has to find a person that might know something about it, named Ziba, a servant of Saul's house. The, the court of David has no idea. And th- all this so that the, all the king's men and the king himself can know and then locate Mephibosheth, the last surviving son of Jonathan, and really the last male heir of the house of Saul. But notice the where is he, the who is he drama of verses one through four. Why is Mephibosheth living and hiding? In the house of Maker, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. That is why is Mephibosheth in a safe house across the Jordan River in a territory, yes, that's under the control of David, but also still has a very high sympathy for the previous royal family of Saul. Mephibosheth is rightly scared that there's a new regime under King David and what they're gonna do, are they gonna act like every other ancient Middle Eastern monarchy of that day? Are they gonna execute any potential challengers to the the throne, starting with the relatives of the previous throne? That was the custom of that day. So whether he had political ambitions or not, Mephibosheth was gonna be like a lightning rod to the Israelites who are discontented. And he actually physically resembled Saul and represented to David 
Saul's murderous pursuit of David in the wilderness all those years. In short, from birth, Mephibosheth was an enemy of King David. Another factor against Mephibosheth is that he's crippled in his feet, verse 3. 2 Samuel, earlier in 2 Samuel, chapter 4, verse 4, tells us that when news came that the Philistines had killed both Mephibosheth's father, Jonathan, and Mephibosheth's grandfather, Saul, in battle, Mephibosheth's nurse took up that five-year-old and she fled. But as she fled in her haste, he, the five-year-old Mephibosheth, fell and he became lame. Likely, Mephibosheth broke both of his ankles in a compound fracture that couldn't just be set with a splint and so therefore was beyond the surgical abilities of that time period. So in short, from the age of five, Mephibosheth is not just an enemy, but he's literally lame. And then there's the names. Like many names in the Bible, Mephibosheth's name and the place where Mephibosheth is hiding all these names reflect his condition. Mephibosheth, literally in the Hebrew of the Old Testament, means from the mouth of shame or seething dishonor. So this young man is literally in the Hebrew named shame. And he is living in Lodabar, which in the original Hebrew meant nothing or no one. So Mephibosheth is a man of shame living in a place of nothing. In the scandal of this passage, set in the context of the whole Bible, it's this. Yes, we can sometimes act like and identify with King David, but we're meant to also see ourselves in Mephibosheth. We too, from birth, are enemies to a king. In this case, King Jesus, son of David. Every one of us is born into the human nature and a family that rebels against Jesus' rule. The sin inside of us wants absolute control of our lives. We say to ourselves in our hearts, we're fine. We tell the world, leave us alone. And every one of us resembles and represents those first human beings, Adam and Eve, and their power grab in the Garden of Eden. And our hearts cry, I know best, and God doesn't really care about me. He isn't really for me. But the bad news keeps coming. We are, too, we are also lame and crippled by the sin in this world. I really appreciate the way that the author, Stephanie Hubach, uses an image. And the image is, is for our unique and universal human condition. We all share, in her words, the same lake. The same lake. We all live in the same fallen from good world, with situations that are broken by evil, and with built-in limited abilities for each of us. We can picture sort of a choppy but beautifully blue lake. Okay? And then we also navigate this same lake, but with different boats. Our personal experience of the fall, brokenness and limits, looks and feels different. And so we can also picture that same great lake filled with everything from high-powered motorboats to gusting sailboats to sort of slightly stranded, almost sinking pedal boats. 
And so Stephanie Huback summarizes our human condition as same lake, different boat. Same lake, different boat. But we so often treat people like Mephibosheth, people who are obviously struggling with their disability or inabilities, as if they were not just in a different boat, but they're in a different lake altogether. And this shaming that we can sometimes do comes from our own sense of shame. The disgrace that we feel in the places and times when we feel the weakest. When we share about ourselves and we think afterwards, was that too much? Was that too little? Or in our family or in our friendships where we feel like we should be the safest and we feel the most insecure. And then the vulnerability that we feel of our physical and mental health. Or on the job, under a deadline, or at home, restlessly looking around at how everybody else is doing. Or even how they're doing it, life, so effortlessly. Sometimes, in our darker moments, it can feel like we're hiding out in Lodabar, in a place of nothing. But into this shame and nothingness, into the rebellion and defensive posture of our hearts comes the Lord Jesus, King Jesus. And we see the reason that Jesus comes, sweeps into our lives by looking at the reason that King David sweeps into the life of Mephibosheth. And this is our second point this morning. Why does God, why does God celebrate? So verses one through eight, the narrator is at pains to tell us David's motivation. In fact, David himself states his motivation three separate times, verse one, verse three, and verse seven. And here's the summary of all those different things, stated in slightly different words. Is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him the kindness of God for Jonathan, his father's sake? But why in the world is David's motivation so emphasized by David and also the narrator? And then where is this very specific motivation coming from? Let's look at the second question first. Let's look at where is the specific motivation coming from? Let's answer that question, okay? So if you remember all the way back in the book of 1 Samuel, David and Jonathan made this covenant, a promise bound in blood, not just to each other, but also to their children. 1 Samuel 20, verse 42, we've both sworn uh, we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. Then David even makes another covenant promise, this time with his enemy Saul, swearing he will not cut off Saul's offspring after him, that he, David, will not destroy Saul's name out of his father's house. First Samuel 24, verses 21 through 22. So in verses one through eight, 15 to 20 years later, somewhere in that range, David is keeping his covenant promise, not just to Jonathan, but also to Saul. David is pursuing a crippled enemy. He's on a search and rescue mission for the least likely person. Why? Because he's made a commitment, a vow he intends to keep. 15 to 20 years later, with Jonathan long dead, David's love for his friend Jonathan is kept alive and in the present, but not primarily by emotion or sentimentality, but by acting on a promise. And so David demonstrates a kind of love that feels very foreign to our cultural moment. But it's also the kind of love that many of us 
do every single day. It's more like a marriage of 15 years or so, or plus, and less like those first few puppy love dates. It's more like a family kind of sacrifice and sticking with, and less like shopping and taking your business elsewhere. According to verse three, this kind of love, David's kind of love for Jonathan and now Mephibosheth, this kind of love is called the kindness of God. The kindness of God. And this brings us back to our first question. Why is David's motivation so emphasized? Answer, because David's motivation points us to Jesus's motivation. And what drives Jesus's kindness towards us? What drives what the Hebrew calls chesed? Mercy. According to the Gospel of John, chapter 6, chapter 10, and especially chapter 17, the high priestly prayer, Jesus has made a vow to God the Father to pursue his sinful enemies, crippled by shame, us, you, and me. And this is God's covenant love, his mercy and his steadfast love, his search and rescue mission. It's not based on God's feelings, Although chesed does imply a deep compassion, so it's there, but not primarily. God's love is not, certainly not based on our merits or demerits. It's not based on our honor or dishonor. God's grace for the disgraced is God acting on a promise. A promise made before the foundation of the world. A promise sealed by the blood of Jesus on the cross 2,000 years ago before the eyes of the watching world. And knowing this oath, bound in blood, makes all the difference. When bad things happen to us, or when we feel so ashamed, it's so tempting to believe the lies. This particular lie, to tell an untrue story an untrue story about a God who abandons us, abandons us when we need him most. The untrue story about a God who is repulsed by us when we're at our weakest or ugliest. But 2 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, tell a different story. It's a true story. The kindness of God. The God who gets up. The God who dresses up. The God who shows up and never gives up, no matter what. David's commitment to Mephibosheth, 15 to 20 years later. The husband, B.B. Warfield's 39-year-long love for his thunderstruck wife. All of these pale in comparison to the eons-long love. The before time began promise to come to earth and to find you kind of love and mercy of God. And it's important to stop and say, believing this about God, that he loves you, based on his word alone, will change your very life at a deep-seated goals level. A few years back, a reader of the Atlantic Monthly magazine wrote in a response to one of the magazine's most popular articles ever. It's still one of the most popular articles ever. It's called Why Women Still Can't Have It All. 
But instead of diving into the debate about feminism, this reader-turned-writer carefully described her life with her 12-year-old son, who still wears diapers, who puts his head through plate glass bathroom windows regularly, who screams so loud in the Whole Foods parking lot that the police come running in. And the author describes all this in order to challenge the shame that we feel living in the early 21st century in the United States of America. Here's what she says. When I look at friends and acquaintances, many with perfectly beautiful children and wonderful lives, and see how desperately unhappy and stressed they are about balancing work and family, I think to myself that the solution to many problems is deceptively obvious. We are chasing the wrong things, asking ourselves the wrong questions. It is not, can we have it all? With all being some kind of undefined marker that shall be ever moved upwards and forwards and out of reach just a little bit with each new blessing. We should ask instead, do we have enough? It's not, can we have it all? but do we have enough? In other words, can we have it all might just be a question that comes out of that sinful feeling we all have of never having enough or the shameful feeling that we share that we're not enough. And perhaps as our lives are controlled and directed by God's avowed love for us, we can begin to actually faithfully ask, do we have enough. And we can take God at his word that he's good for that too. But how can we be reassured that God gives us what he promises, that he's good for it? This is the gift of our third and final point as seen in verses five through 13. These verses are a gift to us because they get graphic about what chesed love looks like so that we can see how God's celebration of us occurs in David's celebration of Mephibosheth. It's our third and final point. Look at verses five through 13 with me. They are a tutorial about how you celebrate somebody. Verse five, David sent the stretch limousine with the driver with the embossed sign on it with Mephibosheth's name to pick him up. And he bring him back safely, securely, and we can only imagine in some luxury to the capital of Jerusalem. And when Mephibosheth arrived, he fell on his face and he paid homage. It's worth pausing to consider how particularly painful this would have been for Mephibosheth. That position, to position himself in that posture with his face down on the ground with broken ankles would have been extremely painful. And just, just also pause and think about how terrified Mephibosheth was in that moment how he must have been, thinking he's been called into the capital city to get killed or to be put in exile, for which for a man who cannot walk on his own is effectively a death sentence. And then David's words, verse six through seven, they carefully anticipate this reality. And he begins by using Mephibosheth's name. Notice, until now, no person in this narrative has used Mephibosheth's actual name. He's referred to as the son of Jonathan, 
or someone from the house of Saul. And even Mephibosheth himself later will only call himself a servant or a dead dog. David is here recognizing Mephibosheth as a person, as a dignified individual who is more than his mostly wicked family, who is more than his lameness. Mephibosheth is not of Saul. Mephibosheth is not a cripple. He is beloved. David means to change Mephibosheth's story about himself. And by changing his story about himself, he means to change his deep-seated goals for his life. And then David proves this love by sharing his compassion, saying, do not fear. That's God's favorite commandment. Do not fear. And I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. But how is he going to do that? David again speaks to Mephibosheth in the form of a promise. A promise just like the one that David made with Jonathan so many years ago. And he's now keeping. I will restore to you all the land of your Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. That is, David is restoring to Mephibosheth royal privileges and a royal identity. But he's going further and he's treating Mephibosheth as if, as he is, David's son, his very son. Mephibosheth will eat with David at his family's table always. And verses 8 through 13 are just David's actions being proven, that they're proving his word to be true. He heaps goodness upon goodness on top of Mephibosheth in land and food and fellowship and family. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons, verse 11. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate it always at king's table. Now he was lame in both feet, verse 13. Notice even in these verses how often the name Mephibosheth is said over and over and over again. And then there's this reminder of grace at work. (laughs) This same lame in both feet Mephibosheth is being loved extravagantly, given such undeserved, absolutely promised royal treatment. And of course, I want to once again underline the fact that this graphic description is on and on verses of how David loves Mephibosheth is for our benefits. It gives us a picture of how God treats us in our salvation. Curbside pickup, check. It's called the incarnation. The name beloved, check. Given land and food, enough in this life, yes. All Can I have it all? Yes, in the next life, heaven and earth, with a Lord's Supper, the wedding supper of the Lamb to boot. And yes, Psalm 23. You, God, prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And all this royal treatment, glorious and uproarious privileges and identity and company, always and for eternity, it begins and it with the same you and the same me, with all of our embarrassing hangups and all of our shaming weaknesses. 
And what we see through David's sworn love for Mephibosheth is God's sworn love for us. And this teaches us who to celebrate. Not just the strongest, not just the earners, not just even the righteous. And it teaches us why we celebrate. We celebrate by making vows to people, to keep our words with our actions. And God's chesed teaches us how to celebrate others. Go ahead, give them the royal treatment. <laughs> but let me land all of this with a story. It's a story I hope illustrates both how we can rest secure in God's love for us, but also how that we might venture out of this security and into a kind of party planning, party transforming kind of love for other people. I have a friend I used to work with named Steve. And Steve has a daughter with special needs named Amelia. And one day when Amelia was six or seven, she was invited to a birthday party. But for Amelia, that was a big deal. And so they had to get a lot of things ready. She couldn't walk on her own, so she had to go in a stroller. And she couldn't hold her, her uh, bowels and her bladder, and so she had to go with diapers. And so she was, in, she was wheeled into the party in the backyard with a stroller and filled with diapers, extra diapers just in case. And this girl, who didn't know Amelia at all, sees the stroller with a few pair of diapers visible in it, and she's shocked. And then she sort of sarcastically yells in a loud voice for all of the birthday party to hear, who still wears diapers? Before Steve or his wife can do anything, Amelia's not much younger brother, Miles, steps forward and very bravely says, they're my diapers. I still wear diapers, they're mine. The way that Steve described that, he said it was like watching God in all of his strength step forward and identify with us in our weakness. He's mine, she's mine. Like family, the way it's supposed to be. And I can imagine it's moments like these that get the party started here on earth as it is in heaven. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for these words to us. Um, thank you for the old, old story. And the surprise it is every time the way it washes over us and sometimes we lose our footing. And I pray that you would remind us a wash in that love. That you're there for us. And that you love us as we are. And that you're transforming us. And that you care. And that you see it all. You see the indignities and you see the shame. You see the hurt and the heartache. And you're doing something about it. Slowly but surely you're doing something about it. You've done something about it. You're doing something about it even here, even this morning, through these very people. In your name, Jesus, we pray these things. We ask for them and beg for them. Amen.